We continue today in our scripture covering uh, the le- Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And today we tackle a societal issue, one that we might not be familiar with, one that might not apply to us, but one still that we can glean some understanding of how to live as Christians in this modern world. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting with verse 1. Now, concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through whom we exist. It's not everyone, whoever, who has this knowledge. Some have, ha- some have, have become so accustomed to idols until now that they think of the food they eat as being offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you, who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their failing, I will never eat meat, so I may not be the cause of one of them to fail. This ends today's reading. Would you please pray with me? Holy God, we give you thanks for this day for this opportunity to worship you here in this place. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be holy and pleasing in your sight. Let's learn more about how your son Jesus lived so that we may go and do likewise. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I get asked a lot of questions as a pastor. Sometimes it's those generally timeless questions. What happens when we die? What does God want me to do with my life? How do I deal with this grief that I'm carrying? And other questions that humans have been dealing with for over millennia. Sometimes I get questions that are pretty specific to the general culture and world that we're living in today. Like, what do you think about all these LGBTQ persons? How do you feel about people kneeling during the national anthem? Are you more of a contemporary or traditional type music person? Then, of course, there are those questions that I never expect, like, hey, pastor, does this cut right here look infected? Please do not come to me for medical advice. We've been going through Paul's letter to the church at Corinth the last several weeks. And as Reverend Mike has explained several times, this pastoral letter was not just sent to them out of the blue. Paul is clearly answering questions and debates that the Corinth church is having. Some of the questions that Paul tackles are those kind of timeless-like questions, like our first category of questions. But some, like the one in front of us today, 
are questions specific to the culture in which the church lived. Because believe it or not, in this modern day, no one has ever asked me, hey pastor, can I eat this steak that was sacrificed and consecrated at the temple of Apollo? Not anything that's ever come up. But it's what's in front of us today. Now we know that this was a subject that Paul was asked about because Paul jumps straight into it at verse 1 without really any buildup. Right before this, he is talking about marriage. Then he just dives right in. Now, concerning meat sacrificed to idols, something you should know. Something you should know that this issue has reportedly already been taken care of. It's already been addressed. In the book of Acts, around chapter 15, you see this huge debate in Jerusalem about what non-Jewish people, otherwise known as Gentiles, need to do in order to follow Jesus. Because remember, up until this point, all the followers of Jesus were Jewish. But the problem for new Gentile converts, a main marker of Jewish identity, being circumcised, was a problem for those adult male converts to Christianity. You could imagine why. But after this long debate, it was decided that Gentile converts needed to stay away from sexual immorality and not eat meat sacrificed to idols. That was it. Paul was then appointed to carry this and teach this to the Gentile believers, which most of the Christians in Corinth probably were. Now, you would think that would be enough, that that would be good enough. But the Corinthians still had some issues, even with just those few constraints. And Paul clearly quotes some of the Corinthians' words back to them, starting with verse 4. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists, and that there is no God but one. Basically, the Corinthians are saying, hey, look, we... We know that all these gods or idols or whatever, they're not actually real. So why would we need to refrain from eating meat that was sacrificed to them? Who cares? Not like those so-called gods can do anything to us anyway. Now your first reaction to this might be, what's the big deal? Why don't they just eat other meat? But there's a very specific cultural reason why some in the Corinthian church would want this practice allowed. Because in Corinth, the temple dining rooms were the rooms where it happened. Business, networking, social parties, all of these connections typically happened around a table at one of these local temples. They were the golf courses or country clubs of their day. Economic activity played out at these temples. And the Christians that were part of the Corinthian church, they didn't want to have to miss out on all that especially the ones who were part of the upper crust of society. So this limitation on eating meat that was sacrificed to idol is really cramping the style of the social elites that were part of the Corinthian church. Look, they had a good argument, right? They really did. They understood that God was the only God. That was a basic understanding of the faith, and Paul agrees with them. Verse 5, indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul's saying here, yeah, there is only one God. But that's not the problem. Starting in verse 7, 
It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food as they eat as offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Friends, there are really some important distinctions that Paul is making here, so we need to dig down a little bit further. Verse 9 states, But take care that this liberty, or the Greek word exousia, of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. The word exousia, liberty, refers here not to like a right that you'd receive from an authority or from a government or a religion, but rather it's an internal liberty. Refers not, it, doesn't, it refers to like a strength of character, an internal strength that you have. So Paul is basically saying what you constitute as your own strength, as your own knowledge, your own character, it's actually destroying those who don't have that. Now, personally, I'm not a big fan of the word weak here, but it's probably the best word that English translators have. But don't think of it as Paul looking at these other folks as deficient, but rather developing. The weak are still a work in progress. But the actions of those who claim exousia, not just to halt that progress, but to destroy it. Verse 10, or if others see you who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, the weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed. When you thus sin against brothers and sisters and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Let's be clear. Paul's concern is not those, that those who are weak might be offended by the actions of those eating idle meat. This isn't some kind of expectation of the, of the weak for everyone to adhere to some sort of puritanical preference. Some folks like to use these scriptures and make it so that others have to adhere to their standards. But Paul's concern here is that those who are weak would see those more established in the faith eating idle meat, then join in and get sucked right back into idol worship. Basically, Paul doesn't care what your individual rights are if it is going to harm someone else. Paul is saying Christ died for these people, and you won't even change your diet. Friends, this, this issue is much, much deeper than can we eat meat sacrificed to idols. In fact, if you keep reading the letter, Paul kind of talks about this a little bit more, and it seems a little less consistent, maybe even sometimes contradictory. And quite frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if the Corinthian church is a little more confused than anything else. But what isn't confusing is the heart of the issue. And it summarizes all the way back in verse 1. The Corinthians argue, all possess knowledge. And Paul says, yeah, but knowledge puffs up. But love? Love builds up. Paul wants the Corinthians to build one another up, not just puff themselves up with all their knowledge. His question is more or less, who are you thinking of first, yourself or one another? 
Are you building each other up? Or are you so caught up in your own desires, your own arrogance, your own pursuit of liberty, or your concern for societal standing that you don't care for others? I remember a board meeting at my first church about three months in where I, honestly, guys, I was all nervous. I was nervous as all get out because I noticed something about this church that made me absolutely flabbergasted. And I knew, I knew that I was in the right. So I knew I had to speak up for the good of the community. So when the board chair said, all right, time for the pastor's report. Bryce, what's on your mind today? I looked around the room. I took a deep breath. I slammed my hand on the table and sternly but calmly asked, why does this, a church of our Lord, serve only decaf coffee on Sunday mornings? The board was shocked. Someone finally spoke up and said, well, I, you know, I'm pretty sure that most of us just drink decaf coffee. Friends, I, I was ready for this. I had done my homework. I knew this was coming. So I said, all right, out of curiosity, if you drink regular coffee, I want you to raise your hand. And out of the 10 people in that room, nine raised their hand. They were absolutely shocked. So I said, okay, so with that being said, I suggest that we have one pot of decaf coffee and one pot of regular coffee. Now, my naivete as a young clergy came when I did not foresee the meeting going off the rails. Because these folks, with their knowledge that their fellow church members also drank regular coffee, started getting very excited. And it got wild, y'all. Like, I had to finally step in when the conversation turned to hiring a barista for the church. <laughs> so that first Sunday came and went, and sure enough, the regular pot of coffee was completely empty. The decaf hadn't been touched. So after service, I approached Chet, who wasn't on the board, but was a gentleman in charge of making coffee each Sunday. And y'all, I was, I was real proud of myself. I had done the Lord's work. I held up both pots of coffee, and I was like, Chet, see, look, look here. Can you believe it? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not actually all that surprised. It was time to make the switch. No one seems to remember why we only served a decaf. Chet then shared with me a story about Mrs. Davis. Mrs. Davis had passed away about a year before I got there, but she was a pillar of the church, a pillar. About 10 years before, Mrs. Davis started having some health challenges, and she started to really struggle with caffeine. Gave her lots of stomach problems, but she loved coffee. So to help ease her transition at church, they put out decaf. But you see, Mrs. Davis had some eye problems, and, they kept gra and she kept grabbing the wrong pot. So some of the folks of the church got together and switched all the church to decaf coffee. So I said to Chet, well, that's nice and everything, but why didn't you just get a pot with an orange handle or something like that? And Chet answered, well, to be honest, we really just wanted her to be happy. We weren't really thinking about what we wanted. We just wanted her to keep, be able to keep having her cup of coffee at church. Think of others first, friends just as Christ first thought of us. Amen.